Well, good morning, Lakeside family and those other visitors who are joining us this morning. We're glad that we are able to gather together in this way and uh, look into and continue to look into the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our series on that. Uh, last week, we are in Matthew 17. And at the beginning, we were looking at the transfiguration of Jesus and what that means to us and the hope that is in the transfiguration. And this, all of the messages now and all of the teaching really that we're looking at in Matthew after this turning point of Jesus um, being declared as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as Peter makes that declaration when Jesus asks who the disciples think that he is. Um, since that declaration now, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to uh, depart or have his exodus from Jerusalem. He's going to the cross and he is preparing himself and he is preparing the disciples for that reality of his death and resurrection coming in Jerusalem. And all of our sermons now leading up to from Matthew to the Holy Week um, to uh, Easter is going to be really in various forms about that reality. And it's amazing, it's kind of fun in a way today as we continue to the end of Matthew 17, that to contrast the majesty of the transfiguration that we looked into last week, we now get in Matthew and from Jesus a very mundane story about paying taxes and fishing. And Jesus has a fun little lesson here for Peter, fun in the way he presents it, and his disciples about the freedom that they enjoy as sons of the living God. And then unexpectedly in this lesson, how they use their freedom in humility and submission. And so we're in Matthew 17, uh, verses 22 to 27, and uh, it gives us the context of the teaching and it gives us the teaching of Jesus as something just comes up in everyday life and how he uses that to prepare his disciples <clears throat> for what is to come and their identity in him. So let's just look at Matthew 17, verses 22 to 27. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So that's the context of the account that we're about to go into. Jesus says, I again am going to be delivered into the hands of men. They are going to kill me and I'm gonna be raised on the third day. And the disciples are obviously distressed by this. And then we have this account in Matthew that follows. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachmae tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish, first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the reading of God's word. Okay, so <laughs> what's going on here? Like I said, after sort of this majestic vision that the disciples have of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and they behold his glory unveiled, and we have this beautific vision. 
Now we have an account that just seems really very funny and common about paying taxes and fishing. And so we need to understand what's going on here. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachmae tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So this is the temple tax. This is most of the time when you were talking about the tax in the gospels, we're talking about the Romans and the sort of oppressive Roman tax. This is not that tax. This is the temple tax. Um, it's two drachma, roughly a day or maybe two days wages. We're talking about 100 or $200 or something like that common laborers wages and so maybe it's a hundred bucks maybe it's 200 bucks whatever it is it's not it's not an oppressive tax when you think about you know a year of giving a couple hundred bucks um, and so the tax is paid for the upkeep of the temple and the Jewish people gladly paid the tax they were happy to pay this tax this paid for the temple it paid for the priestly duties uh, it paid for uh, all the things that were happening around the temple and so the question that the people are asking is, because Jesus has shown himself to be sort of anti-temple and anti-law in his teaching, they basically are asking Peter, doesn't your rabbi, doesn't your teacher and you guys, the disciples, like, don't, don't you guys pay the temple tax? And they're just wondering, like, where does Jesus stand on this temple tax thing? Well, Peter answers yes. And there's two answers that Peter gives in this account, actually, and he gets both of them correct, which is a good run for Peter. But the first answer, which he's probably just completely guessing, so he's outside the house, Jesus is inside, he gets posed this question, are you guys going to pay the temple tax? Does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, ah, uh, yes, yes, we do. Yes, he will. We'll pay the tax. And then he goes inside. And it turns out he's correct, but not for the reason that he thinks he is. So then, Following that, Peter goes inside and, and Jesus is sitting there and it says that when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. So before Peter even tells him what happened outside or what the question was or anything else, Jesus, very insightful as always, says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, we don't have kings and queens directly over us like we used to, uh, but in Canada, it's not so far removed of an idea that we can't understand it. Um, Jesus is simply asking this. If you have a nation with a king, and this king is ruling, and he has the upkeep of the palace, and the palace guard, and the army, and the government, and all of these things that he has to keep up in terms of the governance of the nation, does the king or the queen go to for taxes? Who, who do they go to for taxes? Does the king tax his own family? Does the king go to his own sons and daughters and say, you know, you guys need to pay up so that I can keep the palace and the guards and the government running? No, obviously. The queen doesn't ask Charles or Edward or Andrew or Anne for taxes. The monarch taxes everyone else, not their own family. And Peter's on the ball for this one, right? When, when Jesus asks him the question, does, does the king tax his sons or does he tax everybody else? Peter says, well, he charges others. He says from others. That's good. Peter's pretty sure he got that one right. So then Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. In other words, if, if the king doesn't tax the family, then the sons don't have to pay the tax. And at that point, in the back of Peter's mind, He's probably thinking, oh, I answered wrong. I said that we would pay the tax, and it, I'm getting the idea here that Jesus says we're not going to pay the tax. Now, 
in the end, Jesus is going to pay the tax, but we're going to get to that in a moment. First, we understand what is Jesus teaching here in this lesson to Peter and to us. The sons and daughters of the king don't need to pay the tax. The sons and daughters of the king are not obligated to that demand. What is Jesus teaching here? He says the sons are free. So first of all, we have to ask, who are the sons? And if we're talking about the sons of those are obligated to the temple, which is without a doubt God's temple, and that's who we're talking about because we're talking about the temple tax, then Jesus is referring to the sons of God. By declaring that he is free from the tax, there's another reference here to his identity. But as we'll see, Jesus includes Peter in this description of the sons because he pays Peter's tax too. And so Jesus is saying, I'm free because I'm the son of God. In fact, you're free because you are also sons and daughters of God. So Jesus is the son. Peter is a son. Presumably other disciples and other followers of Jesus. We are sons who are exempt. But who are not the sons then? Well, then other Jews who are still paying the tax out of obligation, who are paying the tax out of tradition and law. Jesus is saying that what John the Baptist has already said and what Paul will say in the future. Remember John the Baptist back in chapter 3 of Matthew. He warns the Pharisees not to presume their sonship of God simply because they are Jewish. In Matthew 3, 9, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. So John the Baptist is saying, God can raise up children all over his creation. He does not. Don't presume that just because you're Jewish, just because you are descended from Abraham, that you are truly the sons of God. And later on, Paul is going to teach the same thing in Romans 9. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In verse 8, he goes on, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as the offspring. Do you see the coherence or you see the consistency in the teaching of scripture here? Jesus is making the same statement. There are people who follow the laws and traditions, for instance, paying the temple tax out of ritual and out of obligation to the law or because of their ethnic identity as Jews. But those people paying the tax for those reasons are not necessarily really sons of God. There's a division even in the people of Israel between sons and not sons, between children and not children. The real sons of the king would know that they are free from these obligations. So Jesus is the son, he's free, and he includes Peter when he pays the tax. He includes Peter in those that don't need to pay, but will pay anyway, which we're going to get to. Now, if those are the sons, those who believe in and who follow God and are true Israel, what are they free from? First of all, they're free from obligation to the temple. They're free from sacrifice, free from the law, free from obligation to earthly authority, like the priesthood that is levying the tax. Sort of, and Jesus has the lesson for us there. But the first freedom we have is that freedom from the law. And we've talked about a lot, this a lot in Matthew already, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But Jesus uses this opportunity, the temple tax, to point the disciples towards the truth that they're no longer bound to the law. They're no longer bound to temple worship. They're no longer bound to sacrifices. They're no longer bound especially to the priesthood. Jesus has set them free from that, the, to follow the law of Christ 
He is their high priest, and they're sons of God through inheritance of his glory, as we talked about last week in Matthew 17 in the, in the transfiguration. Remember that all of this is in the context of Jesus having told his disciples again that he must go to Jerusalem and die. That's what he's teaching them about. Everything is going to change. You are set free from the temple. You're set free from the law. Your obligation now is no longer to religion and to the priesthood. That's the first way, but how else are we free? Well, we're free in Christ in the new temple. Jesus said before, tear down this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. It's one of the charges that he's actually crucified for. Because he threatened the temple, he was put before Pilate to be crucified. And what he's saying here is there's a depth of freedom that Jesus speaks of here that only becomes apparent after his crucifixion. And even really after 40 years later, after the destruction of the temple physically itself. In a way, Jesus is saying here, you're not only free from the temple tax and the temple obligation and the obligations that the priests put on you, but the temple is not where you meet God. The temple was the physical place where God met his people. The, the temple was the place where God tabernacled, that funny Old Testament word that he tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. But no longer, Jesus says, I will raise up the temple in three days. I am the temple that's going to be raised up. I am where you meet God, and I am your high priesthood. And more than that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your bodies are now the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. But that sort of freedom wouldn't really be apparent right at the time Jesus is speaking these words to Peter. But when Jesus says you are free, there is a sense in which he means all of these profound ways in which we are free from religiosity, we are free from the authority of the priesthood, we are free from the temple worship, we are free from the sacrifices, all of those things. But right, how, right now, right here in the moment, what is Jesus talking about? Freedom. He's emphasizing another kind of freedom. Jesus is speaking about those two kinds of freedom I just meant, to, meant and just spoke of, but on the surface, the plain teaching that he's giving his disciples and us is this, because it's right here in the text. And so we can see the freedom that Jesus is speaking of. Jesus says that we are free not to give offense. Once we are free from the law and free from earthly authority, we are still free then not to give offense to those things. Or to put another way, we are free now to act in a way that is best for furthering the kingdom and furthering the gospel. When Jesus says here very directly in the text that we are free from obligation to the temple and the law, he puts the purpose of our action now on a new foundation. We don't pay the tax. We don't obey the priesthood. We don't follow uh, the law or commands under an obligation to the law. If we are to act in a certain way, the foundation or the footing of our action now is on our duty to things, or perhaps better is the word motives, our motives for our behavior now is not based on law and authority, but it's based on what furthers the kingdom. Because look at what Jesus says right after he tells Peter that the sons are free, and Peter starts to worry that maybe they're not gonna pay the tax. He says, however, not to give offense to them. We are free, however. And this is such an important understanding of Christian freedom. This is, this is the lesson that we get from Jesus here and that we get all through scripture that we need to learn as Christians. We are free, however. And this theme of freedom, however, gets repeated at various times over and over and over again. What's the context here for Jesus? Jesus is going to the cross. 
And the real offense, how people are really going to be offended, is by his atonement for our sins by dying on our behalf on the cross. That's what's going to offend people, the offense of the gospel. The message of the cross is what needs to be the offense. And so Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to be known as the guy who is anti-temple. I am not going to needlessly offend my people by simply not paying a two drachmae tax. I'm free from it. I don't have to pay it. We're not obligated to pay the tax because we're sons of the living God. But we are also free not to give offense here. We are free to be loving and kind to others so that they are not needlessly offended for a reason other than what I'm about to accomplish on the cross. Jesus is making a decision now based on what furthers the kingdom. His disciples are free to make decisions now based on, not on the law and not on tradition and not on what the priesthood tells them to do, but to make the decision based on the motive of what furthers the kingdom, what furthers the glory of God. And for Jesus, it was a kingdom furthering and a God glorifying action to honor the temple tax at that time and to oblige the earthly authorities in the context that he was living. And that response for Christians is normative. That's normally the case we see throughout scripture when Christians are called to act. It is normative, it is normal that we would not give offense and that we would follow the authorities in the context of our earthly lives. Not because it's law, because you must do this or that, but rather to act in a way of or from a footing of humility, from a foundation of peacemaking, from deference, to act inoffensively so that there's no excuse given not to glorify the God that people know we serve, or give people an excuse to take offense for anything other than the gospel. And so Jesus sets for here the normative behavior of submission and humility, even though we are not obligated to it. And Peter who is obviously the first-hand object of this lesson, he learns this later in his life when Peter is writing to his Christian friends in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You're strangers in a strange land. You are actually foreigners on this earth now because you are part of the kingdom of heaven. But I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or to translate maybe even a little more accurately, he's saying, act in an honorable way so that even if you're accused of evil doing, the reality of your good behavior will lead people to glorify God on the day of his visitation. Or Paul says it this way in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And so Paul returns to this theme several times, contrasting our freedom from obligation with our duty not to give unnecessary offense. He says where, where we need to honor the authorities that God has placed over us, go ahead and honor them. Where we need to obey them, go ahead and obey them where we need to pay them, go ahead and pay them. 
in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 to 9, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no, no worse off for it if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block of the weak. So Paul compares it to our obligation to legal authority over us and governance. He compares it now in 1 Corinthians 8 to our obligation to other Christians. We're not obligated to do things, but we may do things because we don't want to cause them to stumble. He does it in 1 Corinthians 9. He goes on and he, and he applies it to his ministry to the lost. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So in 1 Corinthians 9, if you go and read the whole passage, Paul goes on and on about his freedom. He's not under the law. He's not obligated to this. He's not obligated to that. I don't need to behave this way. I don't need to behave that way. I'm not subject to this. He says, I'm not subject to any of these things, but I will become any of them in order that I might win the lost. And so this theme of the sons are free, exclamation point, the sons are free. However, how do we use that freedom? It comes up as a theme again and again and again through the text. Paul and Timothy in Acts 16. Um, Paul wants Timothy to accompany him. And he takes him to be circumcised because of the Jews who were in the places where Timothy was going to minister, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek, and so he wasn't circumcised. Paul knows that he's going to be witnessing and he's going to be serving in churches where that is predominantly Jewish. He knows that his circumcision or lack of circumcision is going to be a stumbling block. And so he says to Timothy, you need to get circumcised. Not because it's law, not because you're obligated to, but you're going to do that anyway. Even though you're free from it, you should do it anyway to serve the people that you are serving. Or Paul often says, I am a bondservant of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. We are free, exclamation point. The sons are free. However, we are bound. We are free from the letter of the law, but we are bound to the law of Christ. The spirit of the law lives in us. We are bound to kingdom motives. We are bound to kingdom mission, bound to God's glorification and gospel proclamation. Now for us today, happily, we don't need to get ourselves circumcised as was prudent for Timothy. I'm personally thankful of that. But we may have to give up our freedom to live in any city that we want to in order to serve the mission of God, in order to serve the kingdom, in order to glorify God, we may have to give up that freedom to live anywhere we want to. We may have to give up our freedom to live however we want to. We may have to give up our freedom to act however we want to. Right here at home in Halliburton, in the situation that we face today, day in and day out, how do we conduct ourselves in such a way that we as Christians, as the body of Christ, do not give needless offense by resisting earthly authorities? Either offense to other Christians who may not fully understand the freedom that we have, granted, but that they are still not needlessly offended, nor that we give needless offense to the very people outside the church that we're trying to reach with the gospel. Jesus has a lesson here for us. He says, you are free from the temple tax. You are free from obligation to the law. You are free from religious authority. You are free to live in lots of different ways. However, in order not to give offense, let's pay the tax. There are things that we want people to be offended by or that they will be offended by, but it's not going to be the fact that we needlessly resist authority when we don't need to. 
Jesus says, it's a silly little tax. It's a couple of hundred dollars. In today's terms, it's one family phone bill. And Jesus doesn't have to pay it, but Jesus does pay it. And so do his disciples. Because it's not so important to the gospel that they make a big deal out of their freedom. Paul doesn't have to go to the temple and perform the purification ceremonies, but he does in Acts 21. He, because he doesn't need to offend his Jewish audience. Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised, but he does. Christians don't need to avoid meat sacrificed at idols, but some do because they have sensitive friends. And we make these same decisions today to not needlessly offend and to submit ourselves to the authority that we're under. Because if people are going to be offended, we only want them to be offended as Jesus wants by the cross. The offense of the gospel. The offense that Jesus had to die for our sins and that we must humble ourselves and accept the gift of his atonement. If people are going to be offended by Christians, they should only be offended by that gospel message. They should not be offended by our purposeless behavior and words that are not peacemaking words, but are peace-disturbing and antagonistic posturing. That's the main lesson that Jesus has for us. The sons are free, however. But how else are we free? This is important, too. We come now to the miracle that then follows his instruction to Peter. He says, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel and take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, now why is this funny little miracle here? Jesus tells Peter, go, go and get a hook. Go down to the lake, throw the hook in. The first fish that you catch, take that fish, open it up. You're going to find a shekel in there. Shekels two drachmae. It's got us both covered. Go and pay that tax. And what he finds, what Peter will find, is that Jesus has provided for him. Obviously, he's been provided for by God with this miracle. This is, not, this is not provision any other way other than Jesus saying, at some point in the past, somebody dropped a shekel in the water, or I had somebody throw a shekel in the water for some reason, and before it could get lost in the mud, I had a fish come along and get that shekel. And not only did the fish grab the shekel, it didn't swallow the shekel. It's in its mouth, it's not in its stomach. And while the fish is still holding the shekel in its mouth, it's gonna bite your hook that you throw in there, still not swallowing the shekel, and you're gonna pull it out, and the shekel is gonna be right there for you to find in the mouth of the fish. And so Peter, I'm saying pay the temple tax, but I'm gonna provide for you. Go and pay for me and for you. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, notice this, bring back the change. He doesn't have Peter catch a fish with only two drachmae in it and say, go pay my tax, which obviously I've provided for myself through this miraculous means. You are going to have to go and figure out a way to come up with your two drachmae. No, Jesus says, let's act in a way that's not offensive here, and I will supply you what it costs to behave in a humble way. And I will supply what you need in order to humble yourself and not give offense. In other words, if I'm asking you to submit to the gospel message, and there's a price you need to pay to submit to the motives and the mission and the method and the message of the gospel. In other words, if you're not free to live in any city that you want, or you're not free to have any family you want, or you're not free to act in any way that you want, if there's some cost to you to aligning your motives to kingdom motives, I will pay that cost. I will supply what you need. Now, in this case, it's money. Peter needs money to pay the tax. 
But in many cases, it may be that Jesus has to supply us the patience or the humility or the wisdom that we need in order to honor the earthly authorities and not give offense. But whatever it is that we need to take actions that further his kingdom, Jesus will provide that. He'll provide us with the humility. He'll provide us with the wisdom. He'll provide us with the patience so that we not needlessly offend people at the expense of the gospel, at the expense of the offense of the cross. God will have us do it, and if God would have us do it, then he will supply our needs. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, whether he's a slave, or whether he's free. Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what your position is in society, when you choose to serve others as you serve the Lord, as you hum humble yourself to the mission of God, God will provide what you need. So how is this possible for us? How is this freedom from the law possible for us? How is this freedom from religious performance possible? How is it possible for us to humble ourselves to earthly authority in order not to offend so that we have a good account and a good reputation to offend only by the gospel? How is it that we're able to change our motives to kingdom and God-glorifying motives? Well, it's because of the context of this whole passage. It's because of what Jesus has set his face towards and his will to do. Jesus is free from the obligation to the temple. He is free even from the obligation of the cross. John 10, 18 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is not obligated to go to the cross. Jesus is not obligated to behave in this way, but it is a God-glorifying behavior. He has kingdom motives in his heart, and he is going to the cross, and he is going to pay a price far greater than two drachmae, right? He's going to pay a price far greater than your month's phone bill this month in order to set us free from the law, to set us free from sin, free to glorify God. Jesus is going to pay a price on the cross that far surpasses any religious duty that we can possibly do. He's going to pay a price that far surpasses what we owe in terms of our rebellion and sin. He is going to pay everything for us. This account was introduced at its beginning by the prophetic words of Jesus. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. We are not free from condemnation of the law. We are still under the curse of the law unless the Son of Man gives himself freely as a substitute. We would still be paying the temple tax. We would still have obligation to the temple. We would still have obligation to the sacrifices and to the law and to the priesthood. We would still have all those obligations except that Christ has set us free. We would still have obligation because of the debt of our sin except that Christ has set us free. He gives himself freely as a substitute for us on the cross and purchases for us forgiveness from all sin and escape from all condemnation. That's what Jesus did. So enter into your freedom in Christ. However, however, use that freedom not to give offense. Use that freedom to submit to the mission of the gospel and the furtherance of the glory of God. Put everything that you do 
through the filter of does this bring glory to God? Does this further the kingdom? Does this give opportunity for the gospel? Because if, it's a, if, if our behavior is offending people or causing distress or causing agitation or causing violence or causing offense for any reason other than the gospel, Jesus says we can set that aside. It's okay to pay the temple tax. It's okay to obey the authorities. It's okay to submit ourselves to these things. Let's do that in order to further the kingdom of God. If people are going to be offended, I only want them to be offended because of what I've set myself to do on the cross. So that even if we are accused of wrongdoing, people will see our good deeds, they'll see our humility, they will see our submission, and they will glorify God on the day of his coming. That's what we want. We're not trying to pick fights with people for anything. The only thing we want for the people that we live amongst is that they would see the glory of God and that they would give him praise on the day of his coming. That they, like us, would enjoy the freedom that Christ has died to set us free for. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for this really interesting little story in which Jesus teaches us so much about our freedom. Freedom from the temple, freedom from authority, freedom from the law, freedom from sacrifice, freedom from earthly obligations to authorities. However, however, freedom to not give offense, freedom to be peacemakers, freedom to submit, freedom to set the ground and the footing of our motives on nothing other than kingdom purpose and gospel proclamation and God glorifying. Father, I pray that as we make a thousand decisions a day or a thousand decisions a week or a month or a year, that we would make those decisions from the motive of glorifying God and not giving offense needlessly where we don't need to. This has been your message over and over and over again. We are free indeed, but we are free to love. We're free to be humble. We're free to not give offense. We're free to not have to hang on to our rights. We're free to give them up in service of the glory of God. I pray these